Good morning. So what now? It's a valid question, isn't it? What now? Well, now's the time where we have the sermon, but think about in life this question. What now? It's a question that we all have to answer at some point. It's a question that maybe you're bombarded with, especially our young people. You finish high school and people ask you, so now what? You get done with college and you think, okay, so what now? Um, The kids are all gone. It's just you and your spouse, so what now? Your spouse dies, so what now? You've been baptized, so what now? Again, it's a question that nags and annoys, but it's a question that has to be confronted at some point. Even if you're clueless, even if you are aimless, at some point, you've got to move forward and confront the question of what now? It's a few years ago, I'd been in Missouri, and I was coming home, and I had Zoe and Zane with me, and we were at about uh, the Oklahoma-Texas line, and I looked up ahead, and I saw this huge thunderhead. And so I got out my phone, and I looked on the radar, and sure enough, it was a bad storm headed our way. So I thought, well, maybe I can go around it or whatever, but no. I was going right into it as it was coming towards us, and pretty soon I was in the middle of it. And it was driving rain, horizontal rain, hail, it was wind, visibility was almost zero. And I thought, well, maybe I can pull over to the side of the road if I even knew where the side of the road was. But then I thought, well, I'd be a sitting duck. Somebody wouldn't recognize that I was on the side of the road and barrel into me. So what do you do? I found a, a big truck up ahead of me and I sped up and I got right behind him and I thought, I'll just watch his taillights. Of course, if he was to drive off a cliff, I would have driven off a cliff too, but I thought, I'll just stay on his tail. I'll just follow him all the way until I get out of this storm. My point is, I had to keep moving. You have to keep pushing forward, even if it's hard to see, even if there's zero visibility, you you can't pull off and just sit on the side of the road for fear of getting hit. You got to keep moving forward. You ever seen one of these signs? Maybe at an amusement park, maybe at the mall, maybe in a big office building, you know, you you see one of these signs that says, you are here. You ever opened up the Bible and found a sign like this? When you open up the Bible and you read it, can you find where you're at? Look with me at Colossians chapter 1. Some 2,000 years ago, our world was filled with darkness. It was a dark place because the world was living in exile. And we've talked about better Bible study for the last year or so now. And we've talked about various themes that you can key in on to help you in your Bible study. And one of the themes that you notice throughout the Bible is that it is a story of exile. Whether it's God's people or whether it's us, I mean, it's a story of exile. And so there's darkness. People of God are alienated from him. Some like religious leaders of this time, thought that they were in good standing with God. They had some false hope that they were connected to God, but they were not. So there's this alienation, there's this estrangement from God. The people are exiled. And consider all of that in light of what Paul writes in chapter 1 of Colossians, verse 13. It says, For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. Now, Skip down to verse 21, and you read, And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged 
in evil deeds. So in the midst of this alienation, in the midst of this darkness, something amazing happened. At the right time, God sent his only begotten son to be the propitiation for our sins, to to appease the wrath of God. Jesus came to bring us out of exile, right? Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. He is the deliverer that we so desperately needed. The Son of Man came to bring light to a world of darkness. He came to bring us out of exile. He came to make dead people live. Now, notice Colossians chapter 1, this time verses 15 through 20. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church. And he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Another major theme when you read through the Bible is that of redemption, right? That's what the story of the Bible is all about. It's about redemption. So God implemented a plan to buy back the people. The price of our rebellion was paid. We were saved from this long exile. And now we get to enjoy a relationship in the kingdom with the king for all eternity. That's the story. It's a story of redemption. So you read your Bible with that story in mind. And not only that, you read the Bible placing yourself in the story because you have a place in this story. Something we've talked about Numerous times here in the last few months. You're in the story. The moment you were baptized into Christ, you found your place in the story. Listen to what Paul writes in verses 9 through 12 of Colossians 1. He says, For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light." We are God's chosen people. The church is the new Israel, if you will. We are his chosen people. We once were not a people. We were once in darkness. We were once in exile, but not anymore. We've been grafted into the kingdom. That kingdom that was exclusively reserved for the Jews at one point. They were his chosen people. Now we have been grafted in. Now we have a place. Now all people can find their place in God's story when they find a relationship with Jesus Christ. Take note of Paul's words in Colossians 2, 9 and following. For in him, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in him, you have been made complete. And he is the head over all rule and authority. And in him, you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. In the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ 
having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out their certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. If you can't get excited about that, then I don't know what excites you. A miracle has occurred. Have you ever thought about your conversion or your baptism as a miracle? Because it is. A miracle has occurred. When you were immersed in the waters of baptism for the remission of sins, you buried that old sinful self and you rose a new creature in Christ. That's basic, that's foundational, and we all understand that, but but consider it for a moment. Consider that you are here. And the reason you're here, the only reason you are here, is because of what God did by sending His Son, that plan to redeem back His people, to buy back His people. That is precisely what a miracle is, right? That you were once dead, but you're alive now. And there's only one in the resurrection business, right? And that, of course, is God. This is vitally important for us to understand because I think all too often we see baptism as a get-out-of-hell-free card. Baptism is fire insurance, and it's so much more than that. So much more than that. Baptism placed you in the story, folks. It puts you smack dab in the middle of it. It means that you have a future. It means that not only do you have a future, you have a present that is worth living. Life is going somewhere. You have been redeemed. And you think about that concept, you think of what that means for someone who was once dead, who had no hope, who was living in exile, living in darkness. Which means we also need to understand the proper concepts when it comes to baptism. If you were baptized at camp because everyone else was doing it, if you were baptized to appease your mother or father, if you were baptized to satisfy your wife or your husband, if you were baptized to join a church, if you were baptized because it was an outward sign of an inward faith, that's not scriptural. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that you are baptized, you are immersed to bury that dead sinful self so that you could rise to newness of life, a resurrected life that comes with all the perks and privileges of being a child of God in the kingdom of God, looking forward to a kingdom with a king for all eternity. Man, it's good stuff, isn't it? Here's how Paul describes your baptism. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old sinful self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin for he who has died is freed from sin. Baptism is a death, a burial, and a resurrection. I know you know that. But this burial and resurrection, this death, not only puts you into contact with Christ and thus cleanses you of your sin, but your baptism inserts you directly into the story of redemption so that you are now kingdom citizens. That's where you're at. The kingdom is here. You're here. Unless, of course, you're not a child of God. And based on what we read, what does that mean? 
Well, it means you're still dead. It means that you're still in exile. It means you're still in darkness. But if you're here this morning and you're dead, as long as you're still drawing a breath, as long as you're still able to sit here and to listen to what I'm trying to say and to comprehend it, you have hope, right? Nobody has to be dead. No one has to live in darkness. No one. And as we've said before, if you choose that life, it's only because you stepped over the cross of Christ to get there. This is where you're at. Those of you who are living a resurrected life, this is where you're at. You are here. So what now? Now what? Well, the answer to that question is really pretty plain and simple. And I think that Colossians chapter 3 gives us a thorough answer to that question. There is a a looking ahead in everything that we have read up to this point, right? We have set the stage for our passage this morning, and everything that we have read up to this point signifies a looking forward. There is a purpose behind every word that Paul penned, and every word is saturated with hope and future glory. That's how we often portray the Christian life, death, burial, and resurrection, right? I mean, it's simple, it's easy to understand, that's how we portray it, that's the cliff notes. You, you come, you, you live, you die in baptism, you rise new, uh, new creature in Christ, you die, you go to heaven, right? And so in the meantime, you don't drink, you don't cuss, you don't run around with women that do, and you're going to be okay, right? But there's so much more to it than that. There's so much more than just avoidance. It's about reveling in the life that God has granted you. Have you noticed that the majority of the time that the New Testament writers are writing their letters, they're writing to who? Not to people that need to be baptized. They're not speaking to people who are in darkness currently. They're speaking to people who have been baptized, which should tell us something, right? Over and over again, we see another theme, and we see a theme in Paul's writings where he talks about living out your baptism. As I've said before, you don't obey the gospel one time at baptism. Your whole life is about obeying the gospel. You continue to obey the gospel over and over again during your life. And Paul is saying, remember your baptism. Remember how your baptism shapes your life. Have you you ever thought about your life in that way? Have you ever filtered your life through baptism? Have you ever said, I've been baptized, therefore I've got to live like this? Because that's what you should be thinking. Baptism is not one of these things you do and you forget. It's not about dunking you and sending you on your way. Your life should be shaped and molded by your baptism. You have been immersed for the forgiveness of your sins, and you should live your life in light of your baptism. You are here, so what now? Colossians 3. You notice the very first words of the first verse. He says, if then you have been raised with Christ... If then, which you have been, if then you have been raised with Christ, then what? Since you have been baptized, here's how you are to live. What does a resurrected life look like? Well, I'm going to show you this morning. First and foremost, it's a new way of thinking. You see that in verses 2 through 4. Paul says, where's your head at? Basically what he says. I had coaches who would say, get your head in the game. I think that's what Paul's saying in so many words. Get your head in the game. Where's your head at? Yo, here's the problem that many of us have, not just Christians, but everyone, right? A problem that we often have is that we want to let our minds run free and then stop short of sin. 
That's what we want to do. We want to let our actions or our deeds be sin. But if you start by controlling your actions, you are already way too late. Because what you think determines what you do. And so you start in the mind. You know, Satan will attack us where we're, where we're left unprotected. And, and one, of his, one of his playgrounds is the mind. And so many of us fail to control our thought life, and so therefore we have a hard time controlling our actions. But what we do is a product of what we think. Paul said, we are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Taking every thought captive is what we should be about. We have a new resurrected life that comes with a new way of thinking, so we take every thought captive, we filter out the trash, we guard our thoughts. It was also Paul who wrote, finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. The human mind is always thinking something. Paul says, therefore, dwell on things that are righteous, things that are holy, things that will lead to good things. Because where we fail to control our minds, we also fail to control our actions. We do what we do because of what we think, first and foremost. So you can't start with action and expect to be successful. you got to back up and start with your thought life. But secondly, Paul says that we get a new way of living. And you see that very clearly in verses 5 through 7. The old you did whatever you wanted to do. The old dead you did whatever you felt like doing. The new you does whatever God wants you to do. That's the biggest difference between a dead life and a resurrected life. Now I surrender my will to God's will. I do what he would have me to do. So you have a whole new direction, traveling down a whole different path, going towards a whole other destination. This change was brought about by the fact, of course, that you obeyed the gospel. However, this change can also be attributed to who's inside you. Because you received a gift at baptism, did you not? And that gift is the gift of the Holy Spirit. You received something at baptism that rerouted your life. Galatians 5, 22 and following says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness gentleness and self-control against such things there is no law now those who belong to christ jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires if we live by the spirit let us also walk by the spirit spirit filled people live fruitful lives you belong to christ you've crucified the flesh those passions those desires have been replaced with spiritual produce when you were dead, you didn't have that. But when you were immersed into Christ, you received this indescribable gift. And he fills you and you allow him to continue to transform you. Here's something else you receive. A new way of talking. When you traded in those grave clothes for a white robe, you got a new mouth and a new tongue. At least you should have. So the person who lives that new life in Christ seeks to speak words that are encouraging and edifying. He or she seeks to speak words that are loving and that tend to build people up, not tear people down. 
Resurrected people say things that are uplifting. Their words are a product of what fills their heart, and therefore they talk as one who is being led by righteousness and love. That doesn't mean that they never have a slip of the tongue. That doesn't mean that they never have to confront the truth. They just do it lovingly instead of with hatred or with malice or with anger. It was Paul who said in Colossians 4, verse 6, Let your speech always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. Paul says, make your mouth a means of grace. Don't use language of a dead man. Use your mouth to glorify God, to proclaim the gospel, to encourage the brethren. Dead people use a dead vocabulary. That's not you anymore. You received a new mouth and a new tongue. You speak differently. Here's something else Paul says you receive. You get a new way of interacting. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Here in the kingdom, Paul says, here in the church, there is not racism, there is not prejudice, there is not division, there is not malice, there is not hatred. None of those things exist. Of course, we know they do, but they're not supposed to. And if they do, it's sinful. And it must be purged because that's not what exists in the church. That's not what a resurrected people convey. A resurrected people that make up the church, the body of Christ, are not given to these things. They're not privy to these things. We are a people who seek unity, not division. We want what God wants. And what does God want? He wants us to be a loving family. He wants us to be unified in the love of Christ. He wants us to love one another, bear one another's burdens, stimulate one another to love and good deeds. You get the idea. And so, as a resurrected people, living a resurrected life, forming the church, we don't act like the world. You know what sells to the world around us? You know what sells? Is a body of believers who are unified in the love of God and a love for one another. Why would the world want to come into our fellowship when they see us acting just like the world? What is it about a church that's attractive to the world when they see racism, division, and prejudice, and all those things? Why would the world want to come into that? Why would the world want to be a part of something that looks just like their, their job or their home? This should be a place of refuge from the world where those things don't exist. but something quite different is displayed. We also have a new attitude. What did you live for before you became a Christian? My guess is it was maybe something like, you know, your job or a hobby, maybe money, or maybe you had some other idol that you worshiped or that you lived for. Didn't really think about it, but you did. But when you become resurrected, when you get this new life, you get a new attitude as well. I look back on my life before I became a Christian, and I don't see myself as living in darkness. At least not at that time. I do now, but at the time I didn't. I didn't consider myself living in exile. I thought I had a good life. I felt like everything was good. I felt like I loved God. I didn't feel like that I was somebody who was purposely trying to live a life of darkness or exile. But that's what makes conversion so difficult, right? It's because many times we don't see ourselves as dead. We don't see the true state of being that we're in. But when Christ opens your eyes, 
You see life differently. You see the life you lived before differently. You recognize that there was a void. There was this God-shaped hole that only he could fill. But that's why conversion is so difficult. When a person recognizes their deadness and receives resurrection, their whole outlook on life changes. They, they didn't know what they're missing. I didn't know what I didn't know. And so many people are in that same boat. And so we, we give them a front row seat to the grace of God. We show them that there's a better way. We show them that, that life can have bigger meaning than what they're experiencing right now. That can't help but affect your attitude. There's hope. There's purpose. Paul describes the new attitude this way. He says, And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. So we live for God, and we glorify God, and we thank God for the opportunity to do so. We also receive a new home. You know, as a Christian, our homes should be different. Our homes should be different. Home is where the start is. It's the start of that faith heritage, where that faith gets handed down, and hopefully we create a long chain with strong links and our faith just gets handed down for generation to generation. Yeah, I hear people sometimes say, well, you know, I just, I want my kids to find their own faith. The Bible never says that. The Bible says quite the opposite. The Bible says you are to hand down your faith. The Bible says you are to pass down your faith. That you don't leave that into the hands of your children. You are a steward of the faith that you have and you are to pass it down to your children and to their children and to their children and you form this faith heritage hopefully that will last for many generations. You know the devil is always knocking at our door. He's always knocking at the door of our home and unfortunately he is so many times just invited in. The door's not locked and he just comes on in because we provide a pipeline for the devil to be in our homes whether it's through TV or internet or whatever. We allow him access. We give him a pipeline instead of protecting our family. Many homes are sharing a living room with Satan. Our home should be a sanctuary city, a place of refuge where family members can find protection from the outside world, protection from the devil. But here's what else we receive. We also receive a new work ethic. And I, and I realize that verses 22 through 25 are in the context of a slave-master relationship. But I do think there's a principle here that applies to every single one of us when it comes to a resurrected life and living that resurrected life in our jobs. The main thing that I want to zero in on is that phrase, whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. That word heartily there in the Greek is, is the word cardia. And you can probably guess what it means. It refers to the chief organ of physical life, and it represents man's mental, moral activity. It can mean vigor and zeal and willingness. But in Colossians 3.23, heartily is the word suke, preceded by the word ek or exukes, which means of the soul or out of the soul. In other words, let your work come from the heart. Let it come from the soul. Don't just do the bare minimum. Do your best work. Work for the real master. Remember that it's him you're trying to make proud. He's the boss ultimately, right? So whatever it is you do, including your work, you work heartily for the Lord. Some of you work in places that are really dark. 
and you work with a lot of people who are living in exile. And you may be the only light that they see. Some of you work in places that are much more edifying and encouraging. That's great too. But whatever environment you find yourself in, whatever job you find yourself doing, whether it's sweeping the streets, taking out the trash, whatever it is, you work heartily as for the Lord. Because you represent someone and something bigger than yourself, right? Don't leave things undone. Don't do things halfway. Don't be lazy. Let your work be a reflection of your identity. Here's what I think Paul is getting at in Galatians 3 above all else. If we were to sum it up, here's what I think he's saying. I think he's saying dress the part. That's it. I think that's what he's saying. We live in a uniform society, don't we? Whether it's a baseball player, whether it's a fireman, whether it's a policeman, whether it's, uh, you know, whatever. We identify people usually by what they wear. We can usually tell what a person does by what they wear, right? So if they're a banker, you know, they probably wear a suit and tie. If they're a preacher, they wear skinny jeans with holes in them, right? I mean, that's typically how we identify people in our world. By the way, I'm never wearing skinny jeans, so you can just get over that. But Paul's point is not about modesty, okay? So that's not where we're going this morning. It has nothing to do with that. What he's talking about is dressing the part. What he's saying is that when you were dead, you wore grave clothes. And when you were immersed in the waters of baptism, signifying the burial of that old sinful self, you know what else you left behind? You left behind the clothes you wore when you were a dead person. And when you rise to newness of life, you get new clothes. And it's it's indicative of all these things we talked about. It's a lifestyle, not necessarily clothes specifically, but a lifestyle, right? A new way of talking, a new way of thinking, a new way of acting. All those things are indicative of someone who has put on the wardrobe of Christ. I read somewhere that In ancient times, when someone was baptized, they took the clothes that they were wearing and they threw them away, burned them, tossed them, and they gave them new clothes. They gave them uh, specifically a white robe, typically, which represented a new life of purity that they had put on Christ, that now they were living a new life in Christ. You think about that. It's lovely. It's a lovely picture. And it's indicative of us, even in this day and age. We may not get specifically new clothes. You know, we don't have any white robes back here for you to wear when you come out, but you got to dress the part. You're different. You don't go back and put on your old grave clothes. Why would you put those on? They serve no useful purpose. When you stain your clothes, when you soil your garments, you throw them out or you wash them or something, right? But you don't just keep wearing them. Why would you go back and put on your old grave clothes? You ever seen a butterfly return to its cocoon and try to get back in it? No, that's silly. Why would it do that? Why would a beautiful, majestic butterfly want to go back and be a lowly worm? He's found a new life. That's it. Same with us. You have a new life now. Why in the world would you want to go back and exhume that dead body, dig it up, and put on those old clothes again? Why would you want to do that? Now, here's the deal. Maybe you're here this morning. And if you're real honest with yourself, you're dead. You've done an honest evaluation and and you're dead. And you know it. Maybe you need to bury yourself 
and walk in newness of life. Maybe you're ready to study a little bit more about this new life we've been talking about. You're thinking, well, that sounds interesting. I'd like to hear more about that. Certainly we want to do that. Because here at Oldham Lane, we don't believe in dunking you and sending you on your way. Unfortunately, I think that happens too often. If someone comes in, they get baptized, and they leave, and they never pick up a cross. And so they don't understand a life of discipleship. Jesus wouldn't have done that, and we don't do that. Jesus would have said, have you thought about what you're doing? Have you considered the cost? Have you thought about what it is you're getting yourself into? And we would caution you as well. Consider the cost, but consider the cost of not doing it as well. Consider the cost of living your life as a dead person. It's not good. Not good. Or maybe you're sitting here this morning, and at some point in your life, you buried that old sinful self, but your garments are stained and soiled again. You need to clean them up. The same God who performed that miracle of resurrection at your baptism is the same God who can forgive you. But when all is said and done, no matter where you're at this morning, no matter what state you're in, dead, alive, or whatever, here's an important truth that cannot be argued. And it's this. There is absolutely no reason for you to leave here dead this morning. None. It doesn't make good sense. It's utterly ridiculous. So do something about your situation if you need to. And let us help you. This is a family that's not here to judge you based on what you've done and how you've done it. This is a family that is here to help you to understand what it means to live a resurrected life. Luke's going to lead us in a song. If you have a need, why don't you come as we stand and as we sing?